What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and it's officially February, which means Valentine's Day is right around the corner, which in turn means that we're in the midst of being overwhelmed with iconography of biologically inaccurate hearts and a nearly naked baby with a long-ranged weapon. I'm of course referring to Cupid, who you've got to admit is a weird mascot for a holiday about love and romance. But did you know there's more to his story than just being a fat baby with wings? Cupid was actually a god, the Roman god of love to be precise. Before that, he was the Greek god of love known as Eros, and even before being personified, he was the driving force behind the creation of all life in the universe. I know, that got real heavy real fast, but it's all gonna make sense soon enough. Not only are we going to explore the origins of this surprisingly powerful deity, I'm also gonna share with you some of the most notable myths he's featured in, including a love story of his own that you may recognize as one of the most famous fairy tales in the Western world. Chapter 1 Cupid and Eros so like most figures in Roman mythology, Cupid has an equivalent in Greek mythology, and that's the god Eros. That fact alone is pretty easy to comprehend, but what makes it a little more confusing is that Eros himself almost appears to be two separate beings with two completely different origin stories. Those of you who've seen my episode breaking down the Greek creation myth may remember me mentioning that Eros was the third primordial deity born from chaos back at the beginning of time after Gaia, the earth deity, and Tartarus, the underworld deity. He doesn't directly play a role in the events that follow his birth, but he was still extremely important because he embodied the uniting powers of love, and without love, there would be no creation. It's because of him that Gaia could birth the sky, mountains, and ocean without a partner. Then, after gender dichotomy was introduced, Eros blessed the union between Gaia and the sky, Uranus, and they went on to birth a smorgasbord of other deities. Now, this might surprise you, but that is basically all the info we have on the primordial Eros. After this initial period of creation, his name isn't mentioned again until his birth as Aphrodite's son, and there's no reference to his primordial form after that, so we really don't know how the two are connected, besides their names and what they preside over. Putting that weirdness aside though, it's this next form, his godly form, that is the equivalent of Rome's Cupid, and ipso facto is who Cupid evolved from. Now like I said before, the godly Eros's mother was the goddess of love, Aphrodite, and his father is believed to be one of three Olympians, Hermes, Zeus, or Ares, with Ares being the most popular option as it represents him being born from the union of love and war. This parentage could also be why Eros was given a weapon that had the power of spreading love his bow and arrow. You may not have known this, but Eros actually carried two kinds of ammunition for his bow. The god could shoot someone with a golden arrow and they would be filled with uncontrollable desire for someone of his choosing, or he could shoot them with a lead one, causing them to feel a strong dislike towards someone and avoid them at all costs. As you'll soon find out when we get into the myths, this leads to trouble for both gods and men. As one might expect from the son of the most beautiful goddess, Eros was a total stud. He had fine golden hair, a set of stunning gold wings to match, and on top of all that, he was absolutely absolutely shredded, bruh. Now this is obviously a stark contrast from the big fat baby Cupid that we're all familiar with. Apparently those portrayals began showing up during the emergence of the Roman Empire and became even more common after the Romans conquered the Greeks. And by the way, Saint Valentine, the Christian martyr whom the holiday was named after, was from the Roman Empire. So if you're anything like me and were wondering why society would go with a fat little boy as its mascot for love instead of a shredded beast like Eros, 
that's why. Still doesn't explain why Rome would replace him in the first place, especially because it appears the only change they made between the two was their names and their physiques, but some things we just aren't meant to know. Anyway, another interesting fact is that Eros is not the only one of his kind. He belongs to a winged class of beings called the Erotes. Eros was the most significant of them, in fact, most of the other ones only existed within poetry and paintings, like you can see here, but he did have a brother, Anteros, who was thought of as necessary for his existence. That's because Anteros presided over requited love, which basically means love returned, and according to the Greeks, love must be answered in order to prosper. The two brothers were nearly identical in every way, too, but Anteros carried a golden club and had plumed butterfly wings. I should also mention there was a Roman equivalent of the Erotes called the Amores, but they too were only featured in paintings as opposed to myths. And speaking of myths, now that we've covered the basics of who Eros was and how he evolved into Cupid, I say we look into some stories featuring the Greek god of love. Chapter 2, The Love God's Love Story so before we start this section, I just want to reiterate that while Eros evolved into Cupid after the Roman Empire emerged, for all intents and purposes, they're the same being. Same parents, same powers, same myths. For the sake of clarity and continuity, I'm going to be using all Greek names when I tell this story, like Eros, Aphrodite, and Apollo. But to be clear, each of these tales existed in both Greek and Roman culture, so those names are all interchangeable. Now one thing I didn't talk about much in that last section is that both gods and mortals feared Eros, and they were three reasons for that. One, because he had the power to make any of them fall madly in love by simply shooting them with a golden arrow. Two, and possibly worse than that, he could make the person they were in love with despise them in return by shooting them with a lead arrow. And three, he was kind of a shithead, so if you gave him a reason to do either of those things, he would. In fact, this exact scenario happened to Apollo, the god of the sun, after he taunted Eros about being the better archer. In response, Eros shot Apollo with a golden arrow, and the nymph he was now madly in love with, Daphne, with a lead one. In the end, Daphne became so desperate to escape Apollo's advances, she prayed to her father, the river god Peneus, no, I said Peneus, to save her, and he turned her into a laurel, which, fun fact, was known by the Greeks as Apollo's sacred tree. Imagine the heartbreak that Apollo went through when this happened, and he wasn't the only one who Eros messed with either. There was Hades, Dionysus, and you know how Zeus had roughly 10 billion affairs? Well, Eros's handiwork was responsible for a lot of those. Now, in most of the stories that Eros is featured in, his role is limited to to just being a side character whose hijinks set the plot in motion. But there is one myth where he's got a leading role, and appropriately it's a romance that shows how love and determination can overcome any obstacle. This story was collected from a second century novel called The Golden Ass, which is a detail I just had to include. It opens by introducing us to a mortal princess named Psyche, who was so unbelievably beautiful that people started to worship her as if she were a goddess, equal to the one and only Aphrodite. Do you remember how Aphrodite was born from the sea foam that gathered around Uranus's dismembered members? Well, people actually thought Psyche was born in the same way, except from the earth instead of the ocean. Not only that, Aphrodite's formerly loyal followers started to abandon her temples and altars in favor of Psyche, and this infuriated the goddess of love. To get back at Psyche for her insolence, Aphrodite ordered her son Eros to make the girl fall in love with the most detestable human being on the planet. But while staring at the princess, Eros injured himself with a golden arrow, and instead he fell madly in love right then and there. Meanwhile,
Meanwhile, Psyche was still being followed around by the masses, but curiously, the girl did not have a single suitor. It seemed that most of her followers were content admiring her from a distance as if she were a piece of fine art. Hoping to gain some insight on why no man wanted to be with her, Psyche's father sought advice from an oracle who told him that Psyche was destined to marry a horrible monster who even Zeus himself was afraid of, and that she had to be brought to a cliff in the mountains so she could meet him. Well, heavenly words are not to be disobeyed, so even though the king was horrified by this prophecy, he knew he had to respect the god's wishes. He and the rest of Psyche's family and admirers escorted her to the mountainside and then left her there to meet her fate. At first, the girl was terrified, but soon enough, she was gently picked up by Zephyrus, the spirit of the west winds, and brought to a magnificent palace that contained more riches than any mortal could imagine. While she was there, she was waited on hand and foot by invisible maidens, and every night she would get it on with her supposedly monstrous husband, who also cloaked himself with invisibility. As you can probably guess, this mysterious, invisible husband of hers was Eros, but he didn't want her to know his identity just yet because he didn't think that a relationship between a god and mortal could last. Not only that, but if his mother found out he had shacked up with a girl she had a personal vendetta against, he would probably end up grounded for like, at least a few weeks. Well, surprisingly, Psyche found herself enjoying her husband's company, even without her knowing who he was. But after a while, the isolation started getting to her head, so she asked him if she could meet with her two older sisters, who at this point don't even know that she's still alive. At first, her husband said no, but after seeing how upset this made her, he felt bad and gave in. He said she could meet her sisters under the circumstances that she ignored all the negative things they would say about him and wouldn't try to discover his true identity. She agreed to those terms, and the next day, the spirit of the West Winds brought her sisters over. Now, despite Despite Psyche treating them with nothing but love and respect during their visit and gifting them the most beautiful jewels they had ever seen, her sisters couldn't help but complain on their way back home. And while I don't usually do this for mythology, I'm going to show you guys a direct quote from their conversation because I find it truly hilarious. My life's a hell. To begin with, I have a husband older than my father. He's balder than an onion as well, and he hasn't the virility of an infant. And he keeps our house barricaded with bards and chains. I have to put up with a husband crippled and bent with rheumatism so that he can succumb to my charms only once in a blue moon. I spent almost all day rubbing his fingers, which are twisted and hard as flint, and burning these soft hands of mine on reeking poultices, filthy bandages, and smelly plasters. I'm a slaving nursing attendant, not a dutiful wife. In summary, they hate their lives, so like any good sisters would, they let their jealousy get the best of them, and they decide to sabotage poor Psyche. During their next visit, they convinced her that her husband just had to be a hideous monster who was planning on killing her, because why else would he hide his face, and that she had to kill him first. Against her better judgment, Psyche listened to them too. She managed to sneak a lamp and knife into her bedroom, and after another night of touching buns, she held the lamp over her sleeping husband's face and was stunned to see what had to be the most beautiful man in existence. Her relief didn't last long though. A drop of hot oil fell on Eros, causing him to wake up and realize what Psyche was just doing. Feeling betrayed and heartbroken, he abandoned her there in the palace and said she was on her own from now on. Naturally, Naturally, this crushed Psyche, who immediately tried to drown herself in a river, but the river didn't want to be blamed for killing Eros's lover and spit her out back on the shore. Psyche decided that if she couldn't kill herself, she had to take action a different way. First, she went to each of her sisters, told them that Eros caught her looking at his face, kicked her out, and wanted one of them instead. One at a time, each sister, believing the west winds would be there to carry them to his castle, jumped off the cliff that Psyche had been picked up at, and they died on the rocks below. 
A fair punishment if you ask me. Then Psyche wandered from temple to temple looking for Eros, but to no avail. She even stopped at the temples of Hera and Demeter to ask for help, but the goddesses said as much as they wanted to, Aphrodite was after Psyche and they couldn't betray her. Then Psyche got word from Hermes that Aphrodite was gonna reward anyone who had information on her whereabouts with seven kisses on the lips and one with tongue. No, that's not a joke, so she figured it'd be best for her to just turn herself in. She almost immediately regretted this decision though, because Aphrodite took it upon herself to torture Psyche and treat her as a slave. This was all under the guise of Psyche winning Aphrodite's approval so the goddess would bless the union between her and Eros, even though she never planned on doing that. So what follows are the four labors of Psyche, and like most labors that we read about in Greek mythology, they were all designed to be both humiliating and impossible. First, Aphrodite beats the out of Psyche, rips her clothing, pulls out her hair, the whole nine yards. Then she tells her to sort this massive pile of wheat, barley, chickpeas, lentils, and other plants into smaller individual piles by nightfall. Psyche knew right away that she would never be able to do this, so she just gave up immediately. But lucky for her, a nearby colony of ants heard her cries and took it upon themselves to sort everything, much to Aphrodite's frustration. Sidebar, is it just me or does that remind anyone else of the Cinderella stories where she had to do that exact task for her stepmother and then her animal friends helped her, me thinks there might be a connection there. Now the next morning, Aphrodite told Psyche to retrieve a tuft of golden fleece from the sheep who grazed outside. It sounds easy enough, but the sheep were huge and very aggressive, so Psyche would no doubt be killed in the process. Wanting to end her life on her own terms, she was just gonna toss herself off a cliff instead, but the river below told her not to and then gave her some useful advice. It said to wait until the afternoon when the sheep have calmed down, then harvest their golden fleece from the nearby foliage. Psyche does just that and is then given another task, to retrieve a jug of cold waters from a nearby river's highest point where there were falling rocks and deadly snakes. To no surprise, once she got there, Psyche was frozen with fear, but Zeus saw her struggle and sent his sacred bird, the eagle, to take the jug and fill it for her. Now the fourth and final labor is where Psyche finally meets her match. She's sent to the underworld to retrieve a dose of Persephone's beauty so Aphrodite can use it to get ready for the deity's theater. Again, not a joke. It might surprise you to learn that Psyche actually gets the goods no problem, but she makes the mistake of opening its container, hoping to gain some of the benefits for herself. What she found was that the box didn't contain beauty at all, but instead the sleep of Hades, and this rendered her both unconscious and alone in the heart of the underworld. Worry not though, because it's at this point that Eros has finally recovered from the injury the hot oil caused when it spilled on him, and he's decided he can no longer stand being away from his true love. He travels to the underworld, finds Psyche in this comatose state, and wakes her up by putting the sleep back in the box and pricking her with an arrow. Then he flies up to Olympus to meet with Zeus and ask for his forgiveness for all the trouble he's caused and to bless his marriage with Psyche. My favorite part of the story comes next. Despite all of the shenanigans that Eros has pulled over the years, Zeus still forgives him because he sees the potential in wedding him to a great woman and the maturity that might take place once he's put in the shackles of marriage. It's certainly not the most flattering way of putting it, but I do think it's reflective of the archetypal journey that most men make, even to this day, when they meet a girl they really like and decide it's time to finally grow up and become a responsible human being that could provide for her and keep her safe. In the spirit of his decision, Zeus orders Aphrodite to leave the couple alone, then he summons Psyche to Olympus where she drinks a cup of ambrosia, is granted immortality, and becomes goddess of the soul. She and Eros then go on to have a beautiful wedding that all of the immortals attended and birth a daughter of their own. Hedony, the personification of sensual pleasure. Not exactly what I would want my daughter to be the personification of, but who knows, with how incestuous the Greek gods were, that might have been a bonus for them. Anyway, on that note, we're gonna bring this episode to a close. So tell me, Solo fam, what are your thoughts on the Greco-Roman god of love?
Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. Thank you.